The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. And welcome back to The Weekly Linguist. Congratulations to us, Jarrett. This is episode 21. We are officially legal. I am Jarrett, and that is a voice that I haven't heard in a while. Welcome back, Lisa. Stranger danger, I am back. Sorry, y'all. Um, you know, life happens between COVID and switching jobs and everything. I've kind of been working behind the scenes on the podcast, but I will be back, which is fortunate, or I guess unfortunate if you don't like listening to me, but <laughs> sorry for you that I will be back on. So for the next few episodes, you'll probably just hear me in the intros and doing some explanations throughout. And in a few weeks, I'll be back doing the actual interviews with our guests. So Jared, do you want to tell us who we're talking to these next two weeks? Yes. And I I think it is be a lot funner process with you around. So that's going to be awesome. We're actually coming to you from KBYS in Lake Charles, Louisiana, McNeese Radio. Um, oh, Cowpokes? Yes, the Cowpokes. And because um, we are finally back in town, settled back in after all that's gone on. So this particular guest. I'm so excited. It's phonology. Yes. I said, Lisa, this is right up your alley because this gentleman is going to be talking to us about the vowels of Brazilian Portuguese. This is actually one of the very first people that I invited and with a very specific topic, I would like you to speak about the vowels of Brazilian Portuguese. Why? Because they're they're truly fascinating. They're truly fascinating. Um, and, you know, it has to be Brazilian Portuguese. You know, that's where my heart is. But like all the cool kids study, study vowels for a living. Maybe <laughs> just me, but, you know. You're the cool kid. Vowels by Sprouse. <laughs> Check me out on Twitter. I have no posts. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. You know, a couple of things that we can say. I pointed out last episode that we had a thousand downloads. Well, we're up to eleven fifty without having posted very many podcasts in the last couple months. So that's cool. We now have, uh, I think it's over three hundred and fifty followers on Instagram. I think so three fifty five this yeah. morning. Yeah. So these are, you know, these are not spectacular numbers, but they're good for a growing, a small growing podcast. But it's more than I have on Facebook or Instagram, and I've had that personally for years. So congratulations, our podcast is more popular than we are. Well, there you have it. There you have it. Remember, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, again, you know, it is uh, about Brazilian Portuguese. So there will be a lot of words that uh, Mateus, did I even introduce him? His name is Mateus Freitas. We got so excited talking about vowels. That <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Who he was. So Mateus Freitas is a PhD student candidate at the, univ- the let me see. You got to switch the noun and the adjective. The Federal University of Minas Gerais. Uh, the uh, Minas Gerais is a state in Brazil, so it's the Universidade Federal de Minas Gerais, and the the major city in Minas Gerais is Belo Horizonte, which some of you might have heard about. I don't know if the university is in Belo, but anyway, so that's where he is, and um, that's where uh, he studies and writes about vowels of Brazilian Portuguese. And the vowels in Brazilian Portuguese are. As he makes clear, they're pretty distinct in the way that their system works. So the way that you'll hear me jumping in for the next few episodes is when um, – so when Jarrett and Mateos are talking about some specific 
things that come from Portuguese. When I can, I'll jump in and give some English equivalents or just some explanations. So we are really trying to keep it open. Brazilian Portuguese is fascinating. We do like talking about it, but we want to make sure that we're giving y'all um, just something to compare to so that we can really just kind of show that the things we're talking about are super interesting Portuguese, but they are also found in other languages. So we can really just kind of foster yeah, that discussion. That's true. That's true. Um, the But that leads me back into what I was going to say, which is if you check out the show notes, there will be a whole list on the show notes of the words that we talked about so that you're not, if you want to go and look them up and you want to see the words we're using and talking about, you will have that as well. All right. So with that being said, I'm going to silence myself for a little bit and Jared's going to take over with this interview and I hope y'all enjoy it. Well, we want to welcome you this week to an episode, a very special episode uh, on the Weekly Linguist. My name is Jarrett. I'm your host today. And uh, we are talking to a linguist in Brazil, Mateus Freitas, who is a linguist at the Universidade Federal de Minas Gerais, so which is the Federal University of Minas Gerais. And it's just by chance. I did not plan this, but this is pretty fantastic because most of the time that I spent in Brazil over a period of about 15 years was in Minas Gerais. So I, I think I, I was, my, the first Portuguese that I learned was full of we and trem. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, to be quite honest with you, um, you know, Portuguese has always been a special part of my life. And um, although I never learned it in a book. I learned it in the streets of Juizafora, and uh, and I'm just this is an exciting moment for me because Portuguese has a very special place in my heart, and um, I actually managed to find Mateus. He is a phonologist in uh, Portuguese, and because what I Mateus was the first person that I contacted where I had a specific topic in mind, and I wanted to talk about the vowels of Portuguese because I think they're absolutely fascinating. So anyway, let's begin. Um, Mateus, bem-vindo. Obrigado. Uh, well, uh, Jared, I'm very happy to be here today because uh, talking about the vowels of Portuguese is not um, only very uh, special to me because it's my main interest as a, as a researcher, but also because I'm a native speaker of, of, of Brazilian Portuguese. So in a sense, it's, it's not just a linguist and a phonology a phonologist that is speaking, but also uh, a Brazilian. And for that reason, I think it's it's fantastic to be here today. I'm, I'm very glad. I'm flattered. You know, as a matter of fact, I think you're the, if I'm thinking about this, outside of maybe the Louisiana French, you're the first linguist that I've had that is talking about his very own language. And so I think this is it's spectacular. I, yeah. I want to I start, before I introduce you a little bit further, I have a quick question. What is the difference? Because I found both of these words. What is the difference between a phonological and a phonologista? Is there a difference? Um, I would say that phonologista is not a word that we would use in, in Portuguese. Uh, it's not a word that I'm used to. But if you said phonologista, I would interpret as the same word as phonologo. So it's the same word. Okay. Um, well, somebody needs to tell word reference <laughs> because it, it's, it needs to be corrected then. Okay, so um, Mateus' master's work was on segmental weakening in Brazilian Portuguese, 
which I think is very interesting. And uh, but your current work, which you're in the same boat I am, you're you're still working. Um, it is on the well. The title of it is A Produção e a Percepção da Apocope no Português Brasileiro, which means Production and Perception of Apocope in Brazilian Portuguese. Um, you are teaching as well as doing your PhD at the, like we said, the Federal University of, of Minas Gerais. Um, and uh, your primary interest, sound change, phonology, experimental analysis, vowel reduction, phonological representations. And I know enough in my head to know that those terms sound more complicated than they are. But this is a very fascinating topic. But I want to ask you a question really quick before we go forward. Tell our audience what uh, apocope is. Yeah, apocope is the deletion of a segment of a sound at the very, at the very end of a word. And in my case, I'm studying the, the deletion of a vowel. So that's what apocope is. And apocope has some um, very severe consequences to, to the words because when you lose a segment such as a vowel, you lose a syllable, you get a consonant in the end of a, of a word that was not supposed to be there. So that's what the this phenomenon is. And, and in Brazilian Portuguese, we are witnessing that apocope is becoming productive. So there are some recent works about it, um, how, it how it's going to change the, the structure of the language, um, and syllable structure, stress structure, and so on. So that's what it is. All right, so let's take a little pause here and talk a little more about apocope. So we're getting a really good explanation of how this works in Brazilian Portuguese. And I just want to talk a little bit about some English correlates of this, because you may not think you know this word, but I think that you probably see apocope in your everyday life. Um, so in a strict linguistic sense in English, apocope is not as productive as it is in Portuguese. We see it a lot in changes from historical older versions of English into modern English. So, for example, if you're ever, you know, at a Renaissance fair or something and you see something written like the old O-L-D-E. So spelling that is just O-L-D now is not just an orthographic change that is indicative of apocope. In older versions of English, that N-D-E would have been pronounced as a more reduced vowel, something like olda. And so with that being lost would be an example of the apocope. Other words that have done this would be sweet and root, for example, used to have an E at the end as well, which would have been somewhat pronounced. I think the way that we see apocope more in English now is with abbreviations and the formation of new words. So while we're talking about apocope on this episode, just as the loss of the final vowel, it's also sometimes considered when you do the loss of a final consonant or the loss of final syllables instead of just one sound. So some examples of that would be ad for advertisement, amp for ampere, photo for photograph, and movie, which comes from moving picture. So we do have this in English. It's just not as productive. And back into Brazilian Portuguese we go. I definitely want to talk about that. Um, yeah, I've you also lived in, in Minas Gerais and you, you maybe you, you perceived that vowels tend to drop uh, at the end of a word. Well, what I have noticed, at least in, in my experience, I've noticed that a lot of times the plural markers are dropped. Right? 
Like, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, eu, eu, eu vi os meninos. Yeah. Eu vi os men Instead of os meninos, yeah. eu vi os meninos. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you're yeah, talking that's about. That's a case of apocalypse as yeah, well. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing that I, have, that I have noticed. But I'm going to go ahead and put on the show notes. You sent me a list of resources that um, our listeners, if they're interested, can look at. Um, phonological processes, uh, resources about uh, vowel harmony, uh, structure of the Portuguese language, um, E's and O's in Portuguese, um, also a gíria brasileira, né? so like, uh, Brazilian slang or Brazilian informal speech. So yeah. I'm going to put these, I'll put these onto the, onto the show notes so that those that are interested can look at it as well. But what I wanted to do And let's make sure to come back to what the apocope being productive, because that's interesting to me. But let's tell our, our listeners to begin with, when you're talking about Portuguese vowels, you're really talking about a different animal from Spanish vowels yeah. and from uh, French vowels and even Italian vowels. Portuguese vowels are special. Now, again, I've never learned this in a book, so I've never studied it. All my Portuguese I learned in the streets of Dwizafor. Okay, so um, I've never looked at it formally, but when I was thinking about it, I noticed in my head that Portuguese has all five basic vowels. It has a couple of extra distinguished uh, uh, contrastive O's, like avó, avó, right? And that one was hard for me. That one, avó, avó. My grandfather, my grandmother, and the only difference is o, o, ye, but. You also have those basic vowels can combine into diphthongs. And here's the crazy yeah. thing. And you tell me where I'm right and where I'm wrong. But here's the crazy thing. All of the basic vowels can be nasalized and all of the diphthongs can be nasalized. So yes. talk to and, me about what vowels do we have in Portuguese? Yeah, yeah. It's almost all of them can be nasalized or diphthongized in a sense. Um, when we see a phonemic chart of vowels of Portuguese, we have a very basic chart with seven vowels in a very symmetrical distribution. It's the very uh, same uh, system we have in Italian, in Galician, and other Romance languages, but they hide something there. They're not exactly that. Um, when I say the seven basic phonemic vowels, I'm talking about um, front, central, and back vowels. So, and it is symmetrical because for each front vowel, I have a back uh, rounded vowel. So for E, which is front, I have U. For E, which is front and unrounded, I have O that is uh, back and rounded. For uh, E, I have um, O. And the, the last one is A, ah, the, the central, low vowel. And these are distributed in four different heights. This is important, in a sense, because um, it's related to this difficulty you have in, in making the contrast between avô, avó. We have the high ones, i, u. We have the mid-high ones, e, o. We have the mid-low ones, e, o. And the low one, um, Ah, so some cases of contrast that are problematic to other uh, to speakers of other languages are the these mid ones e e o o because uh, Portuguese only relies 
depends on quality to make contrast. That's different from English, for instance, because in English you have long vowels, short vowels, and then you have a, a, another property to make this contrast. But we rely only on, on the quality. So height is, is important. For our listeners, what do you mean by quality? Quality is um, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't between, mean it doesn't mean good or bad. It, what does it mean in, in yeah, no no it, it means vowel quality means um, the tongue position when we produce a vowel. So if you when you say avo avo, you you can notice that your tongue is a little bit lower when you say avo when compared to when you say avo. That's why it is a mid low vowel and uh, and the other one is a mid high. So when I'm talking about high, mid, and low, this is what I'm talking about. It's about the, the tongue position. So I just want to jump in here and talk a little bit about vowel quality because it's really becoming a topic in what we're talking about right now with Portuguese. So with English, vowel quality is also important. We don't really have long versus short vowels in the traditional sense. We have what's called tense versus lax distinction, which kind of gives you a difference in length. An example there would be something like bit versus beat, where that bit is um, a lax vowel. It tends to be pronounced shorter, and then when it's raised and lengthened a little bit into the E and beat, so that is kind of in English what we would get closest to a difference in length in our normal vowels. Uh, and there are many uh, examples of contrast between mid-vowels, uh, like avo avo, which means grandfather uh, uh, and grandmother. Pepe, uh, which means P, the letter P, uh, foot. Uh, it's another contrast. Um, and there's there are many others like poço uh, poço. Poço means uh, a water well, a well in the sense of a water well. And poço is a is a inflection version of a, of the verb. Uh, can or dear, and so th they are contrastive, and this is very difficult for for foreigners. Uh, in my experience, it's difficult because they don't have this category to distinguish between the mid ones. Um, but the good news are that they only contrast in tonic position, so it's only in this specific position that they are going to be contrastive. So you kind of only have to worry about them. When they are in tonic position, I never noticed. So this. it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter if you say relógio or relógio. Uh, when e é in pre-tonic position, he he relógio relógio, uh, a word that means clock. Um, it's not contrastive. Both words mean relógio. So when you say tonic so, position for our listeners, you mean the syllable that's stressed. Basically. Yeah, that's yeah. that's it. You, as you're talking, you're reminding me of this of this. Mineiro, who came up to me and offered me coffee when I was just learning the Portuguese, and he thought he was being funny, and I guess he was, but he came and he offered me coffee, and he asked me, por popo? And I, I <laughs> have you heard this? Por popo? And, and I, I have to admit, I could not understand. Well, this was in the beginning, but I, yeah. So I was getting those those different sounds of the O oh, right there, but uh, yeah. Anyway, keep going. I think you're saying things that I know in my head, but I've never realized so oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So that means they make sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, it, 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 I never realized that these contrastive vowels only occur on stressed syllables. I never thought yeah, about it. I never thought syllables. about it. I never but, thought about it. 
However, they not them there might be some specific cases because these vowels interact with morphology. So there are some very, very rare cases where they are contrastive in pretonic position. I'm talking tonic and pre because I also want to say pretonic, post-tonic, because the position is also relevant in Portuguese, not only if it's stressed or not. But this an, an example of this this what happens with morphology is that some prefixes may change the the position of the vowel but they won't change the quality. So when you have words such as um, coco, which means coconut, and coqui, which means uh, a bun, the, the hairstyle, you have, uh, respectively, you have a, a mid-high or a mid-low vowel, or uh, in the tonic position, the stressed position. So coco, coqui. When you add the, the, the prefix for the diminutive, you say coquinho, coquinho. So in these uh, these mid vowels, they are now in pretonic position, but they keep their their original quality and they are contrastive. If you go to a, to a Brazilian speaker, to a Portuguese speaker, and say um, coquinho, they will know it's a little coconut. If you say coquinho, they will know it's a little bun. So they are only contrastive in this uh, in this situation when when they interact with prefixes, but outside of that, it's it's it doesn't matter right uh, which mid vowel you you're choosing right. So that's good news, maybe. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating. I, I never realized that, but you're absolutely right. I'm I'm thinking about these words as you're saying them, and yeah, that makes total sense to me. That makes total sense to me. Um, is it true? This is what I've always noticed. Is it true that any accented uh, vowel on a Portuguese word is always in the tonic, is always on the tonic vowel? What do you mean by accented? When any in the when you write the word in Portuguese, if the word if the letter oh, has no, an accent, no, that's, it's usually a, on the stressed vowel, right? You mean an orthographic? Yeah, uh, orthographically. If 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 okay, you okay. if you if you put the accent mark, I'm talking about a grapheme. Mm. So if you put the accent mark on a Portuguese word, that syllable is usually always the tonic syllable. Is that right? Usually, yes, but unless it's obviously it, a cedilla, but uh, outside of a cedilla. Yeah, no, but when you have a tilde, um, it might not be the the stress syllable. So you have words such as orgo which means organ, right? Uh, and it has, it's one of the few cases where a word is going to, to have two diacritic, diacritics. So you have two accents. You have a acute accent in O and a tilde in O, orgo. So you have this O, but it is not the stress syllable. Yeah, because it's not, a, it's not orgon, it's orgon, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So it's like ninety nine percent of the cases, but not always. This uh, it's not always right. when you have an orthographic accent, you're going to have a stress syllable. Right, right. It's not a hundred percent. That's the answer. Well, are there any vowels, at least the basic vowels or the diphthongs, that cannot be nasalized? Uh, a diphthong that cannot be nasalized is like eu, uh, eu. That cannot be nasalized. You don't have em in, in Brazilian Portuguese or in, in even in 
European Portuguese and African Portuguese, I think. This is, the, a, this is for our listeners, this is EU, the word for I, the personal pronoun. Yeah. Yeah, but with a, with a, with a tilde, I would say like this. Um, yeah. we, don't, we don't have that. We have eu. We don't have, we have eu, we have el, but we don't have eu. It's, a, it's an example. But there are few. Uh, most times we are, you are going to have the possibility of nasalizing a, a, a diphthong or a, a vowel. And that's and when it comes to diphthongs, that's very true in Brazilian Portuguese, because we can have um, a vocalized uh, l. So a word such as sal, which means salt, it's not produced with a with a consonant l. It's produced with a with a vowel, and so it becomes a diphthong like sal. So I have sal, sal, um, mil. And th there's a wide range of possibilities. So, so diphthongs are very productive in Brazilian Portuguese. Okay, interesting point here about L vocalization that we've been talking about. So it's not as common in different dialects of English, but we still do get this that happens. And I actually happen to be a native speaker of a dialect that uses this pretty widespread. So I am a speaker of Pittsburgh English, where my yinzer's at. And we do this in English in Northern Appalachia as well. So when an L is vocalized, uh, like Freitas said, it's kind of like that L, the glide of the L is kind of replaced with something like a W. So if we get it at the end of a word, and we're talking about sound-wise, not orthography at the end of a word. So if we take the word P-O-L-E or P-O-L-L, and apologies if my pronunciation sounds odd because it's hard for me to do with a normal L. Most standard varieties of English would keep that L as a traditional L as we know it and say something like pole. When the L is vocalized, it kind of takes on more the element of a W, which sounds like it's blending into the vowel a little bit more. So instead of pole, in my more casual speech, using a vocalized L, I may say something closer to pole where it sounds like a W at the end. I know that one of the difficulties that at least English speakers or friends of mine or people that I know learning Portuguese, one of the biggest difficulties that they have is the, is the nasalization. And so, I mean, I'll be honest with you, people that I know that have been going to Brazil and studying in Brazil for many, many, many years, they still say, coração, coração. And this is one of the things that, you know, I mean, I, I guess I managed to say uh, I, I can hear it better. It's corazón, right? But you still hear this. But this is a hard thing for English speakers to pick up with. Yeah, it is because you don't have it as a contrastive uh, sound. And nasal vowels are contrastive in, in, in Portuguese. Mm -hmm. So a way to comprehend what nasality is, is um, you do have nasal consonants in, in English, so when you say uh, the first sound in a word such as may, if you, if you keep saying may and you touch your nostrils, you'll notice that the airflow is coming out of your nostrils as well. But when you say bay, this does not happen with the first sound. So the, the sound for M and the sound for B are different in this sense. They're almost the same. They're produced in a very similar way. You close your lips, um, but the difference is only that, that where the airflow is going to escape. 
Um, so when you have a nasal sound, the airflow is going to escape through your nostrils as well, not only through your mouth. Uh, so when you have a nasal vowel, it's the very same thing. Uh, when you say ah, the air is only coming out of your mouth. But when you say uh, it's, it's supposed to also come out of your nostrils. So this is a good exercise. Try to, to produce these vowels uh, with, your air, with the airflow coming out of your nostrils, of your nasal cavity. And maybe you're going to be more successful in, in producing them. Right. Um, right. So that's the difference. And they are contrastive. They are, uh, they are not trivial. We, we, they are important to us. So, um, a different, so when you say a word such as meta, which means goal, objective, and you say a word such as menta, which means meant, there are two different words. And we, and the only difference is that is one is the first one is oral. It's not nasal. And the second one is nasal. So, and, um, okay. Like I said, I've never looked at this formally. But I'm sitting here thinking, there are two ways to indicate nasality in the orthography, right? Uh, uh, many times the vowel will be followed by an M or an N, right? And and sometimes yes. you have the tilde, right? So there's a yeah. there's a there's a people in São Gabriel de Cachoeira uh, in Brazil in the northwest. They were pejoratively called for a while the Cama, Cama, right? And so and that that A has a tilde on it and it's a nasalized A. But then when you have con or sang or seen, then these are written with an M after them or in S if it's in the plural, right? So uh, am I correct that those are the two ways to mark nasality in the orthography? Yeah, you are. You, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the tip to know if it is actually a nasal vowel, first, if there's a tilde, it's going to be a nasal vowel. That's a that's a, a hundred percent situation. If you see a tilde in the orthography, you know it's a, it's a nasal vowel. But the problem is the only vowels that accept a tilde in in the orthography are uh, a and o, a and o, uh, a and o. The other ones don't accept it. So we use the nasal consonants to mark it orthographically. Uh, to know if it is a real nasal uh, vowel, you must uh, be sure that that consonant is at the end of a syllable. So the word I just mentioned, menta, I know that because what follows the N in the orthography, I believe we're going to share all the examples uh, in written form so listeners yes. Can, yes, yes. can know what we are talking about. Mm -hmm. But when I write menta, I have an N followed by a T. So I have M-E-N-T-A. This N is not pronounced. It's menta, not menta. I, I don't say that N sound. So uh, that's a way of, know, of knowing uh, this, that vowel is supposed to be nasal. Uh, sometimes vowels will be nasalized. They are not contrastive, but when they are when they precede a nasal consonant, they are going to be pronounced as a nasal uh, vowel. So words such as cama, cana, this first uh, uh, it is a, a a nasal sound, 
but I cannot contrast it with anything else. So we call those nasalized vowels. They are different from the from the the vowel in kappa, uh, kasa. Uh, this is a, a an oral a vowel. So this also happens well, when the 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 vowel precedes a nasal consonant, you're going to have some nasalization, especially if this vowel is in, in stress position. Um, so it's some, most people will say comma, but only some will say caneta. See, that was my most question. People. Is that if, if that tends to be more actually lexical or whether that's dialectical? Yeah, that's dialectal in a sense. Yeah. Uh, nasalized vowels uh, are very prone to dialectal variation. One of the nasal cons- nasal vowels are not. All right. One of the other things that I've noticed, and um, but like I said, I've just got a couple of examples in my head. You've looked at it systematically. You know, I, I'm a professor of French here at, at the university. And one of the things that French does, French has these very many of the same nasal vowels, well, roughly the same quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have the same system where they have the vowel and then the N. It's usually an N after that. Yeah. And, uh, but many times when that N is followed by a, a word that it must make liaison with the, with the vowel, then that the N makes liaison and the vowel will lose a little bit of its nasality. Okay. And so, but what I've, th- what I've noticed in, in, at least in Brazil is you don't really have that liaison because I can think of, um, uh, você foi com quem? Com quem? Com quem? Eu fui com ela. I don't say if we yeah. com ela, you know? Yeah, that does not happen at all. So there the is that, that, M, that M and that N, they, there, there are no situations in which they get pronounced. No, they don't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, you can have some, um, some remnants of that in morphology, but it's not a, an active process. Because when I say uh, historically, you have the the word leão, which means lion, but when you use the uh, the adjective, you say leonino, so you have this n back in in a sense, but only in these situations, morphological derivation. Uh, there's no liaison of nasal consonants in Brazilian Portuguese, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that does not happen. So, uh, so the the I say com quem com ela. Mm-hmm. It's not Cornella. That does not happen. Right, right. Thanks for listening, and remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you'll find further information about this episode, like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, any resources mentioned in this episode, and a list of words and phrases discussed in the episode. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform like iTunes, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and others with more being added as we go along, like Spotify, which was recently added, so that's exciting. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, please tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes, by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done, and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. We also know there's room for improvement, so for any feedback, positive or critical, write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we're doing well, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic for an upcoming episode.